Well, good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. All right, I'm going to have a chair with me because I think the warranty is worn out on my knee and suddenly it just doesn't feel right yesterday and today. And some of you who are shaking your heads extremely, you know what it's like to have body parts that fail. And so I'm joining you this morning in that feeling. So I may have to sit down through some of this. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Continuing our study, if you are joining us today and haven't been joining us, we take time to study through the Bible and and, and our normal pattern of doing that is just to travel through the writings as they are laid out in scripture, uh, recognizing God has inspired these words and it's going to take us into conversations that he wants us to have. And so we're not necessarily getting to pick our own topics here. We're just following what God is presenting next. And we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and I'm going to read the passage to us that we're going to focus on. But I think this message is particularly relevant. The title is Solving Inner Turmoil and Outer Dysfunction. And that was the story that we have observed in the Corinthians' lives. But I want to make sure that we see both of those things, because that's, that's our story quite often too. Quite a bit of what is outer dysfunction for us has its birthplace in inner turmoil. And so to stare at the Corinthian church and to see a church that had a lot of outer dysfunction, don't ignore where that comes from. Their story is one of inner turmoil that ends up in outer dysfunction. And Paul's going to help us quite a bit today in this passage. So let's pick this up, beginning in verse 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Father, when we come to your word, Lord, we come as limited creatures in need of your power to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so, Lord, tucked in these verses are some things that we will not see, things that no eye has seen and no ear has heard, you have said previously in these chapters. But they are shown to us by the Spirit 
who has been given to us. So we humble ourselves. We come into this place this morning needing you, Holy Spirit, to open our hearts and open our eyes to see what we cannot see without you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to do two things in these verses today. Uh, one, I want to give us a little bit of a education about ourselves. Because there's a couple of little things here, and I'm going to spend a lot of time, but I just I thought them attractive to expose us to us. And then there's another little section in here toward the end that really helps us to undo some of the inner turmoil of our lives. So I hope that's helpful. But, but let me just say this. You know, if, if you're reading, there's a bunch of ideas that are floating through your Christian experience. Uh, teaching, Bible teaching you've come across. You know, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? Well, Corinthians is all over that. What's, what is a carnal Christian? Right? The reason why you have these terms is because the letter to the Corinthians brings them out. But... I want to use a different term about these Corinthians. They, they, they certainly are carnal in the sense, because that word's going to get used to describe them in these passages. But they are shallow Christians. They are Christians. But they are shallow Christians. And they are shallow in two categories that we're going to see today. They're shallow in their knowledge of God. They're shallow in their knowledge of themselves. And the Corinthians are, are the Corinthians should be good friends to us because they are helping us learn so many things about ourselves. And there's just a reality that, that many of us live our lives with a great deal of self ignorance. We travel through life. Life has complications. Most of our complications, most of the stuff that really weighs us down and gets us is related to other people, people that are in our lives. It's not, it's, you know, stuff is important, stuff matters, etc. But, but it's people, right? It's the disappointments of people. It's the expectations of people. It's the conflicts we have with people. It's the lack of people. It's the people who won't come near us or the people who moved away from us. These, these are the things that get us on the inside. And so in that endeavor, most of us have some pretty good awareness of what those other people are up to and what their problems are and what needs to get adjusted in them. You know where we're lacking is, what am I bringing to the game? What's in me that comes with me that I I might need a little better self-awareness? And I get that that's not always attractive, it's not comfortable, but it's very necessary. I can remember a, a conversation I had with one of my kids. They were in their middle teen years, and um, this one particular child was, he was pretty good about coming to me when he got knotted up, and he would come and sit down, and we would have conversations. I remember exactly where we were seated. I remember this conversation vividly because it was insightful. As he, he listened, and he would listen well, and trying to figure out what to do with what he was just hearing. In one particular moment, he, he just honestly turned to me and he said, Dad, um, sometimes I feel worse after talking to you than when we started. <laughs> and I, just, I just so appreciated his honesty. And I was in that moment, of course, I was aware of a number of things. But one of the things I was aware of is I, I think I just fire hosed a, a 16-year-old 
with 50 years worth of life. Uh, it's like, here, here, this is what's going on. But the conversation we were having was a conversation that began with, do you understand why you do what you do? So if I ask you that question, do, do you understand why you do what you do? It, it's, there's this shallowness in us that a lot of us don't understand why we do what we do. Because we haven't taken the time to let God show us ourselves in light of showing us him. And we need that. We desperately need that. So I want to get there in just a moment. But let me, let me clean up a couple of little things that are on our way into that in this passage. Right, we've just come out of, and Evan did such a great job last week, and, and, and he, t- he just kind of touched on something briefly, and I, I'm just going to touch on it briefly as well, but it was, it was tucked away in verse 15, or actually verse 14. If, if the work that anyone has built on, the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. All right, sometimes when you come and read the Bible, I just want, I want, I'm going to chase this rabbit intentionally, although it's not primarily what I'm trying to talk about this morning. But when you read the Bible, how many of you recognize that there are some passages that are easier to understand than others? They just are. Like right on the surface, they just come right out and announce, here's what I'm trying to say, and nothing makes us go, ooh, this is weird. Wait, what does this mean? All right, but you just read a passage about fire, and then you just read a passage after that about God destroying people. God's going to destroy. All right, what are you doing with that? This destroying of God here. Well, well. Any passage that you come to that feels like it's, it's, it's about to make you believe something that feels really kind of weird. What, what, what should I do with this? Well, here's what you shouldn't do with it. You should, con- you should not conclude that in and of itself, that one Bible's passage is all you need to know about what it's saying. You should not conclude that. This is how cults get formed. Secondly... You should not conclude that it reinforces some harebrained idea that you have. Right? You finally found the one verse that backs up something that nobody else is supporting. Nobody else, yeah, but you knew it was true and that Bible verse says it. No, 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 no. What you should do is gather the rest of the Bible around this verse and say, hey, what's the rest of the Bible say about this? So what does the Bible say as a man is preaching this message to the church, to a gathering of people just like us, and he breaks news that God may be destroying some of you? What do you do with that? All right, well, the Bible says things about this. The Bible says that God may not respond favorably to everything you're doing with your life. It says that. And as a Christian, as a child of God, the Bible comes as far as saying God could respond to your need by disciplining you. You need to have a category for that. But you also recognize discipline is different than destroying. So if you begin to see discipline as a destructive thing in your life, that's trouble. 
Right, so the Bible does say you could be facing God coming into your world with some, with some uncomfortableness planned for you. But you know what else the Bible says that, that could be part of this? Again, I'm, I'm saying could be. This is, this is not an easy verse. This verse has got some challenges to it. And we do the best we can with the challenges that we face. The Bible describes speaking to this group, this gathering of people. The, in the church, in the gatherings of the church, the Bible holds out the reality that, that not everybody who is in the church is actually saved. So technically, you're not really in the church. You just attend. You're just among the church. And the Bible speaks to that group. The Bible identifies that group as saying, you know, there is such a thing as tares that grow up among the wheat. So in the church, right, and, and you know, I've never been a wheat farmer, but apparently tares, as they're growing up, look a lot like wheat. So you've got these weeds that are growing in the wheat field with the wheat. And as they come up out of the ground, everybody looks at that and it's like, hey, everything looks the same. But there's coming a day when that wheat is going to mature and going to produce fruit and the tares are not. And then you'll be able to tell the difference between those two. And that refers to this great day that God is bringing where there's going to be a harvest and he's actually going to separate the tares from the wheat. So in some regards, if you're a tear here, you, you look like all the other Christians. But you really aren't one. And you could be in the midst of the church actually doing things that are destroying the church. And so the Bible would very accurately be saying, and God will be about destroying you one day in judgment. So that actually is throughout the scriptures. That, that, is, that bears witness with the Bible. To come up with something that says you are genuinely born again by the Holy Spirit. You belong to God. You are of God's household. You are his child and God's going to destroy you. Now you got nowhere to go with that idea. The Bible will not help you with that. As a matter of fact, the Bible is going to raise its eyebrow to you over and over again and say, where do you get that idea? Where do you get that idea? What made you conclude that? Right. So when we come to the Bible... And we find a verse we're not quite sure what to do with. We need to bring other verses to visit that verse. Right? So right before that, and, and Pastor Evan brought this out last week, this, this concept of, of the, the verse before, is it speaking of purgatory? Because that sounds like an idea that we've kind of, some of us have had taught to us. That there's this idea that there is a, an encounter with fire beyond this world because of remaining sin in us that's going to need to be dealt with by fire. And then you're going to be saved as though through fire. So fire gets associated with salvation. All right, just pick that up for a second and say, okay, that, that doesn't sound like what I've heard before. What do I do with that? Okay, well, you don't conclude, well, that's purgatory. No, 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 no. That's an idea that you didn't get from the Bible that you're trying to make the Bible support it. What's the rest of the Bible say about purification of sin, getting right with God? Does the Bible ever teach elsewhere that fire is what accomplishes that? No, what the Bible consistently teaches everywhere else is that blood accomplishes that. So if, you, if you've got sin ever in your life, future, past, things that you have done, and, and one day you're going to stand before God, there's only one thing that's going to deal with those sins in a way that you will now be accepted by God, and it's not fire. It's blood. 
Right, so a couple of quick examples here. Ephesians, right, so I'm going to pull a couple other verses into my conversation here with this verse. I'm going to pull Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to hear Paul say, In him, verse 7, we have, we possess redemption through his blood. Redemption is the buying back of God of us to himself. So, so we belong, we are God's through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses. So at some point, blood is going to bring an end to sins separating us from God. Blood is going to do that, right? First John chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Purgatory has the idea of some 98, 99% cleansing with something now needing fire to deal with a dimension of it beyond that. Okay, well, that doesn't bear witness with the rest of Scripture, right? So this is an exercise in these verses. How do you, how do you interpret the Bible as you read through it? Will you bring the Bible into that conversation to see, is that what the rest of the Bible teaches or does that violate what the Bible teaches? Well, the idea that something still needs to be done with your sin in order to purify you and make you to stand in God's presence, blameless with great joy. And this is the worst of associations here because what that does, the second you take something that only Christ can do and you make it something man is supposed to accomplish, this is, carefully read Galatians, you have introduced another gospel you're actually preaching another god this is not a small thing this is not, hey those of you who want to believe in purgatory go ahead and believe in purgatory no, no don't you do that you believe something that makes you have to accomplish something that only the son of god could accomplish on your behalf that's another gospel that's not just some optional belief here. Right? So, so this is what we do. When we come to the Bible, we find it's got some, some spots in it that are a little bit, ooh, well, that, that sounds a little awkward. Well, we bring other pieces of the Bible into that conversation. Let me just highlight one more thing there in that original section there. When he says, do you not know that you are God's temple? Right, this, this is a wonderful identity statement, right? Who, you know, who are you? Who are you and I as we travel through this world? Well, you are God's temple. Now, now if you fast forward a few chapters, you're going you're gonna to come back to this where Paul's going to say your body, and he's going to refer to your physical body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so in that passage, he's going to be talking to you as an individual, in this passage, he's not talking to you as an individual. He's talking to the group. This is a plural you. And so it is Paul standing in front of the church of, of the Corinthians, just like I'm standing in front of us today, and saying, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells here in some mysterious way among us as we come together and identify together as a, a local church. This is a local church identity factor. It is a local church identity factor that needs to show up in my personal identity. 
it, it needs to adjust. What, what do I see this place as? It's just a, a think tank meeting, just a moment for me to pull in on a Sunday morning, get a little thought here to kind of juice me for the week and then go about my business the rest of the week. Okay, this community of people is being spoken to in this book and, the, and it's still speaking to us today. So it, it's talking about how we live among one another. What kind of relationships do we have with each other? What, what kind of care do we extend to one another? What kind of involvement do we welcome from others? The good, the bad, the difficult, all that comes with being a community. You are a dwelling place of God. Listen, listen this, is, this is that city set on a hill dimension of God. It's, it's the way God brings a particular revelation into the world. Now, is he doing that through you as an individual? Yes, he is. He is doing it through the collective body of Christ as well. And and you and I don't get permission to say, well, I'm kind of into the individual version of the temple, not the collective version. You, You don't get to say that. In God's plan, this collection needs to have an impact on this world. And you as an individual cannot duplicate that impact. You can only make that contribution as you become, and this is, remember, Paul's going to teach on the body in 1 Corinthians, as you become a member of the body, as you become a hand or an eye or an ear. So part of your identity as a believer is in connection with and in association with a local church. That church should be so significant in your life that it partially defines who you are. Do you not know you are this? Paul is saying to them. Gordon Fee points this out. He says, as God's temple in Corinth, the church was to be his alternative to Corinth. But its religions and its vices, both the religions around it and its vices. But the Corinthians, by their worldly wisdom, boasting, and divisions were in effect banishing the spirit and thus about to destroy the only alternative God had in their city. Listen, that conversation about destroying things is in the context of something being built. Remember what Evan taught last week? And the the thing primarily that's talking about what's being built is the church. Now, I don't think you're wrong to steal that building into our own lives. You know, we're we're building all kinds of things. But the context here is the church is being built by us. And and that's the work that's going to be tested by fire. In this context, I think God's going to test all of the works. But it's going to be tested by fire of what we built here. Do do you you understand that? Are Are you building something here? You. Not just guys who stand up here, play pianos and and lead stuff and lead your small groups. Every person's building something here that one day is going to be rewarded or or consumed. And that's what's being described here. One of the desperate needs of the church, Gordon Fee says, is to recapture this vision of what it is by grace. And therefore also what God intends it to be. In most Protestant circles, one tends to take the local parish altogether too lightly. Seldom does one sense that it is or can be experienced as a community that is so powerfully indwelt by the Spirit that it functions as a genuine alternative to the pagan world in which it is found. It is perhaps not 
too strong to suggest that the recapturing of this vision of its being is its single greatest need. Might that be true? For the church to be this light that it is, what it is among us needs to grow in value so it can become that to the world around us. But he starts this little section with this catchy little phrase here. And this is where I wanted to say, this, this knowledge that we continue to be so shallow in, it's a tricky little thing. Two phrases I want to capture here. Verse 16. Do you not know? Do you not, do you not know this? Don't you know this? This is, this is the Apostle Paul's presentation. And what this little verse does for them and for us, it puts us in touch with this reality. There are things that we know that we really don't know. And you know, if you listen to enough messages through the years, there's all kinds of ways that this tries to get explained to us, right? And we counsel one another with thoughts that sound like, you know... I know it up here, but I, I just don't know it down here. And then I've heard people use really cool illustrations that are backwards from that. You know, I know it down here. I just, you know, on a daily basis, I just don't know it up here. So, all right, whatever illustration works for you, the, the apparent reality is there is a disconnect. There is knowledge that can sit in us that, quite honestly, we really don't know it. We know something of it. We know about it. It doesn't sound like... I've never heard that before. But we don't know it. It doesn't own us. It doesn't possess a parking place on the daily features of our lives. It doesn't seem to be producing an impact. Gordon Fee says the fact that Paul will use this device ten times. He's going to repeat this phrase ten times to them in this letter probably says much about his feelings toward the Corinthians and their behavior. Given their own emphasis on wisdom and knowledge, which they emphasized a lot, this may be more than simply a rhetorical device here, moving closer to irony or sarcasm. And for those of us who believe that sarcasm is a gift... It's helpful to see Paul put it on display, which you're really going to see it coming up here shortly in his writings. Do you not know who you are? He asks them. And it's clear from their current behavior that they do not know, or at least, listen, have not seriously considered the implication of who they are as God's people in Corinth. And I think that is probably the more common of the two. It's not that they've never heard this, don't know anything about it. It is that they have not seriously considered. They have not interacted with a revelation from God in a way that the Bible actually requires us to. The Bible is not into shallowness. It's just not into it. It's into us meditating on, pondering, considering. These are the kind of words that the Bible uses over and over again. It wants us to engage things that we are taught, things that we read, but to recognize that just because I know the vocabulary words that go there or because I've heard that phrase before or I can finish the sentence you just started doesn't mean I know it. 
See, for the Corinthians, how, how would Paul know that they really knew this stuff? They would smell like it. They would look like what they knew. The fruit of these things would be on display. And they weren't. This is a conflicted bunch of people. This is people with something else operating in them besides this knowledge that he speaks of. D.A. Carson says, So, although... On the one hand, Paul believes his readers possess the Spirit. And pay careful attention to that because we can dismiss these guys if we don't affirm that. On the other hand, he feels he cannot address them as people with the Spirit. That's a real problem, isn't it? You have the Spirit, but I can't, I can't speak to you as though you do. I'm not sure what you say when that becomes a dilemma. Whew. Try not to chase a rabbit here. It just flew in my head. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't invite me in moments like this. This is not, this is not good. I mean, let me just say, there are, there are situations, there are um, you know, counseling situations and, and walking with people situations that you know, God has said something, God has revealed something so clearly that our life now is to become based on that. We've got to know that thing right there. And it's got to take possession of us and we've got to live in light of it. Now, Christians sometimes don't, they, they know this, but they don't know it, whatever this is. Or, or they're unwilling to get around that and get their mind renewed, abandon some of their own personal tendencies, their, their background, their, their previous teaching, whatever it is. They, they won't do that, but then they want to sit across your dining room table and, and have you tell them how to do it in some other way. Can I, can I just tell you the Bible's Really, really big on plan A. And then there are moments when it's absolutely silent on plan B. So what do you do with a church that's designed to be spirit-filled? To know things in a way that deeply impact them, but that's not who they are. Okay, Paul, lead that church. Uh, uh, can you show me the section in here that's for leading people who don't know something and aren't led by the Spirit? I, I can't show you that section. So, so if, you're, if you've got turmoil going on in your world right now, if there's stuff inside of you that just, oh, you're just turmoiled by it. If you don't plan on knowing God deeply and being led by His Spirit, we cannot help you. Amen. Oh, we can talk to you. We can cry with you. We can suggest some things to you. But deep down inside, we cannot help you. Because by your life pattern, not only do you not know, you're refusing to know. You have to know some things. So this is where, I mean, sometimes we're just really shallow. We don't even know why we're doing what we're doing, but we know the people around us are doing the wrong thing. We're sure of that. I know that. I'm pretty deep in that. And, and I just like you as a counselor to, to, to tell these people how to get fixed. What, what do I need to tell them? Give me some ammunition to tell them. You, you, you might need to know God in such a way that you begin to know yourself a little bit. And when that shallowness begins to disappear, you will know things and they will affect your life. And that's the problem Paul's having here. 
goes on, D.A. Carson goes on, he says, that's why he has had to re-articulate the elementary gospel to them again in the first two chapters of this epistle. Yes, they are Christians. Yes, they do have the spirits, but in certain particulars, still to be laid out, coming in the Bible, in this letter, they simply do not act like it. Now, remember who these people are. They're attending meetings like these. They come together as a church. It's a church that meets. They have small groups. They show up in their small groups. They exercise spiritual gifts in a level that we would be jealous of. They speak in tongues. They prophesy. They have words for one another of knowledge and prophecy. And listen, those are real gifts that are really happening in this church. And they shouldn't be a bad bumper sticker on the church in Corinth. Let's be very careful. These people are very dysfunctional, but not in that category. They're actually pretty sharp in that category. But that, that presents an interesting dilemma, doesn't it? Because on the one hand, depending on what tradition, and I know you've got to hang in here until we get to this part later in the book. On the one hand, these guys are spirit-filled, aren't they? Come on. I'm speaking to you charismatics and Pentecostals right now. They meet the criteria for being spirit-filled. They speak in tongues. They prophesy. Okay, at this point in the book, you sure you want to call them (laughs) spirit-filled? It's a problem, isn't it? Because they look like they are so missing it in some other categories that the spirit should be producing in their lives. So this this is a problem for our terminologies and how we use them. Because right, I'm pretty sure being spirit-filled means more than it should mean speaking in tongues and prophesying and exercising supernatural gifts. It should mean that. And it should be more than that. So I'm not sure you can just say, oh, let me just, real quick, you, you speak in tongues? Well, then you are officially spirit-filled. Uh, uh, I'm not sure that's how Paul's sounding to these guys right now. He's sounding like you guys got a world of trouble going on. There are, there are ways that you are severely missing it. I'm very glad for you in this category, but you're really sucking air over here. So be aware, there are things that Christians can know that we really don't know. So we need to press in to know those things. The second little phrase here that's curious about our ability to know things is in verse 18. Right, so first you've got this, don't you know this? And then you've got, let no one deceive himself. Right, so Paul announces something. In announcing this, he announces a condition that exists for these Christians as well as for any Christian who will ever come along for the rest of time. That we need to be careful because we have the ability to deceive ourselves. Now, all of us should have a, a respect, a sobering respect that we can be deceived, right? You visited the Garden of Eden? Everything is perfect. Everything's in harmony. There are no problems to solve. There's no discomfort taking place. Nobody's trying to escape a bad deal. And then they get tempted and deceived. That's not the scenario, is it? Everything's in harmony. It was, it was a beautiful day amongst beautiful days after another beautiful day. And everything was fulfilling and wonderful. And Eve gets deceived in that setting. So no human being should think, well, I'm not going to be deceived. 
uh, you're in a much worse situation than Eve was. And she was deceived. But this is interesting. Not only can we be deceived, I kind of get the, you know, the trickster, the magician guy who shows up on the outside and he tricks me. But this verse tells me I can deceive myself. So there's this strange little condition floating around in fallen human beings that, that I could play hide and seek and not be able to find me. <laughs> Isn't that weird? I mean, I know I, I don't even conceive that that could be possible. But I could be walking around going, I don't know where I am. Where am I? I hid from myself really effectively this time. I'm in for it. I'm capable of that kind of strange scenario with things that come to me and I take possession of them. And in my own shallowness about me and about God, these things get inside of me and begin to operate. And I begin to think about things in a way that aren't really true. D.A. Carson says, do not think that you can adopt the philosophies and values of the world as if such choices do not have a profoundly detrimental impact on the church or on each of us individually. Do not think you can get away with it. Do not kid yourself that you are, you're with it, an avant-garde Christian When in fact you are leaving the gospel behind and doing damage to God's church. The the path of true wisdom is to to side with God. To always find yourself believing that God knows the reality of this situation. God sees things accurately. God is right all the time. There one discovers that the Almighty utterly reverses so many of the values cherished by the world. You and I have got to embrace this, this biblical truth. God calls us to something that in the nature of the world we live in, feels upside down. It, it suddenly feels left-handed. For those of you that are right-handed. It, it, just, it, it doesn't feel like I've got my shoes on right. This just feels so unnatural. So we get this when it comes to obvious, really obvious stuff. Right? The, the world's party spirit and party mentality. That's a value for the world. Make room to party hard, man. And you and I would notice, oh, well, that, that's, that's not the way the kingdom of God should be. I've noticed Christians aren't noticing quite as easily and quite being so discerning when they hear ideas that say something like, surround yourself with people who are like you or who like you or who will applaud you. Surround yourself with those people. Those ideas come at us and we're kind of like, yeah, yeah. I heard somebody, I was visiting the church in Atlanta. We had a great conversation with some of their leaders and I was listening to some of them download some of their experiences. One of them said, yeah, I've noticed uh, in in social media how how much you're encouraged to get rid of, quote, toxic relationships. Y'all heard that word? Toxic relationships? That's a toxic relationship. And we just noticed that, you know, basically that's our way of looking at, you know, that person in your life, they're toxic. Well, what does toxic mean? Well, you know, they're, they're bringing you down. They're slowing you up. They're keeping you from being all that you could be. You know, get rid of those toxic people. Do you know how many Christians don't notice that that's upside down from the kingdom of God? Do you understand the first step of the son of God for whom you are being conformed in his image was to step into a toxic world and invite a bunch of toxic people to relate to him? 
Can you think of anybody, anybody who was really not toxic around Jesus? Can you imagine that maybe in the kingdom of God, God doesn't mind you having toxic people in your life? People who drain you, people who aren't going to help you go where you want to go. Because maybe you're there to serve them. Maybe you're there to help them get where they need to be. Instead of them being there to get you where you want to be. Understand? That's upside down. I even know right now I'm saying that. And some of you need to go visit your Facebook page and take down those quotes. That are promoting that idea. Because it's snuck in under radar. This is what I mean. You know things that you really don't know. Because like the dashboard light should have gone off on that toxic idea. You should have seen that and go, what the heck is this? Now we get, don't party and throw up in your car on the way home. Christians don't do that. Oh, we get that. How how many Christians don't get that, that money needs to sit in your life differently than it does? That God has not invited money into your life as a source of security. Your retirement, your future. You know, how, how you need to build your whole life and you hold on to things. And, you know, guy comes up here, takes the offering. You're kind of like, I don't really give to the church. Do you, do you understand? That's upside down. The kingdom of God calls on you to live upside down. To take the value system that you've been taught. To find your security in predictable settings that suit your personality. Or the amount of money you got in your pocket. And God says, no, 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 no. That's not the life I'm calling you to live. Yeah, give that away. Give it away. God, you understand how hard it is for me to pay my own bills? Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Give it away. Whoo. That's upside down. But that's exactly what we're called to. And I'm quite capable of deceiving myself into believing that's not good for me. If I do that, that's not good for me. You're deceiving yourself. You are saying something that God is not saying. If I deal with that relationship that way, if I, if I engage that person or that setting, if I stay in this difficult moment, that, that's not good for me. And you, and you convince yourself of that, right? You find something that makes you feel like that's how I should feel and I'm justified to feel that way. Uh, you are deceiving yourself. God could call you to be a martyr, to follow him until you're dead. You understand? That's a biblical framework. This, this, is, this is not welcome news in the, in the Christian world today. God calls you to what feels like a risky life. And he doesn't stand by and say, oh, no. Nothing's going to hurt. Do you understand why we freak out when stuff hurts? Because we have deceived ourselves into believing that the God of the universe would never call upon us to do anything painful. That's not in the Bible. God calls us to pain all the time. He sent his son to bear the greatest of pains that ever existed. And it was exactly the will of God that he do that. If you want a pain-free existence, it's the next life. Door down the hall. It's not this one. But I can deceive myself with ideas that I didn't get from the Bible. So be careful about that. Let me, let me run to our, our turmoil now. Because Paul's going to turn a corner here in this passage. And he's going to say something that's going to sum up so much of what we've been discovering since chapter 1. In verse 21... He says this, so, two-letter word, giant implications in this setting. 
Let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, the present, the future, all are yours. And this is a summation point. This is Paul returning to something he's been visiting over and over again. And we've been visiting it with him. This is a conversation with these Corinthians that began way back in chapter 1. Verse 10 or so. Right? Where Paul began to highlight stuff that was related. And he's going to use this boasting word as a kind of a summary moment. He keeps pulling stuffing into this boasting word. So I'm going to do that too. But he, he says, you know, I've heard it reported. By Chloe's people in verse 11 of chapter 1. That there's quarreling among you. And what I mean is this. It's one says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Well, I, I, right? So there's this divisive thing. And he begins to explain what's going to fix that and why that's present. He's going to get over in chapter 1 and verse 28. And he's going to highlight, listen, this is, this is remedy talk. Do you, do you, if you want to understand what's the turmoil inside of me, what does it need to hear? Does it just need to hear the people and the settings around me are going to change in a beneficial way on my behalf? That's not what Paul teaches here. Paul's going to teach insights that can cure the turmoil. And one of them is in chapter uh, 1 verse 28. Paul says, you know, God chose what's low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. And he's speaking to you. saying, "You're, you're nothing special, right? Did you know that about yourself? I know you you kind of all doped up on too much Oprah and trying to feel real good about yourself, but did you know the Bible says God chose unimpressive stuff? Are you okay finding that out about yourself? He's just not all that, wow. God didn't go, wow. Hey, can you invite all the angels? I just want you to see this guy down here. Just That's Keith. (laughs) Wow. I'm picking him. No, he's on my team. I'm picking him. Okay, that's, that day never happened in heaven. <laughs> Verse 29. So, so that, here's why, no human being might boast. And then in verse 31 he says, so that as it's written, let the one who does boast, boast in the Lord. Apparently boasting is an issue. Chapter 3. Verse 3. Even now, you're not ready. You're still of the flesh. That's that carnal word right there. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. And that's how we get all the way here to the end of this chapter where he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world. But if if I was just visiting earth and reading this, I, I would say, hmm, I haven't met many people yet, but apparently there's a boasting problem with this creature. And the nature of boasting in this is not just the guy who constantly talks about himself. uh, You know, sort of sound like Donald Trump at a press conference. Uh, That's not the nature of boasting that's being referred here. Boasting's got stuff in it. Boasting's got a way of creating life and wanting life to be a certain way. So that we can feel a certain way. So here's what I want to do. I want to take boasting apart. I want to to try and introduce us to ourselves here. This is the nature of boasting for the Corinthians. But I think there's a lot for us to hear here. So here's my 
cheap rendition of boasting in men involves what? Well, here's what it involves. One, it involves first identifying, finding, and seeking some kind of uniqueness. Right, so you and I live in our lives. We want to we find something unique and special and noticeable and noble, stand outish. And so the Corinthians would do that, and they found that in Cephas, or they found that in Apollos. They found something about the style of these guys, the, the impact of their ministry, the unique illustrations and wordings that they used, and it made them, I'm, I'm with him. I'm with him. I'm like, I, I got to find that first. Second, it means associating oneself with that uniqueness. So I want to find something that I think is impressive and helpful. And then I want to associate myself with that. So that I can be seen in its light. I can be identified with it. Now listen, today that, that might not be a person like it was for them. Today it might be a trend. It might be an idea. It might be a collection of ideas. It might be a group to interact with. Maybe a, a tradition. That, that something about something you have identified as unique that you see is going to further you in some way. So you just want to stand in its light. And then you begin to place your confidence in this thing. I am confident that my future is a good one because this thing here is going to deliver. It's going to do something for me. It's going to posture me. Now remember, this makes sense, especially if you remember, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. They lived in a patronage culture. So in, in the Roman world, what you wanted to do is you wanted to get associated with the right guy, the power mover in your area. And there were a bunch of them. You could pick from a variety of them. Because that guy, he was like a multi-level marketing program. Downstream from him was all kinds of influence. There were businesses that related to him. There was government officials that related to him. So if you were going to need a favor from somebody, or you were going to need a job one day, or you were, you were going to need somebody to come protect you against something, you were going to need to know the right guy. So you were going to need to associate yourself with so-and-so because everybody then would know, don't mess with him. He's associated with so-and-so. Or do business with him. He's associated with so-and-so. So this was in them, which made it very easy for them to go, well, I'm of Apollos or I'm of Paul because they had this mindset that if you're going to be confident about your future, you're going to have to associate yourself with somebody who can deliver for you. And we haven't traveled far from that. We try to get confidence and peace about our future by doing exactly this. But, but once you transfer your confidence there and you've identified something, then you're going to begin inevitably to compare what you have with what others have chosen as their patronage. And that comparison on some points, you're going to feel superior in some moments. You've got a better deal than somebody else. You've got a better idea. You're associated with the right trend, the right church, the right whatever. And, and so you feel superior, so now you've got pride to deal with. Or maybe you compare and you feel inferior. And now you've got jealousy to deal with. So what you've stirred into the Corinthian church by this boasting problem is comparison and pride and jealousy and strife. That's exactly what he's been highlighting. This is what creates their trouble. And once you relocate your confidence in one of these things, now fear 
will be your constant companion. And listen, this, this can creep in in some strange ways. Right? You, 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 could, you could be trying to, the, the next beauty thing, right? I mean, beauty is, beauty is your patron. That, that's who you're going, to, you're going to align yourself with beauty. And, and people are attracted to you because of your appearance. And you're managing that. And your allegiance is to that. And your future is about that. Do you know how much fear you're installing in that moment? Because in the back of your mind, you know, you're going to get ugly like everybody else. (laughs) You are not exempt from gravity. Everything's going to droop and fall down. It's coming. So as you wait for that day and you stare into the mirror and you realize, I think I look worse today than I did yesterday. You know, fear. It's like, oh my gosh, my patron's not going to deliver. Exactly right. It's not going to deliver. It's exactly right. But the real question is here, and I love, Paul's going to give away. What's really going on on the inside here? Why are we doing this stuff? Why am I shopping for a patron? Here's why. Verse 21. So, let no one boast in men. Why, Paul? Why? Why don't get wrapped up in this boasting venture? Well, because all things are already yours. Huh. That's an interesting thought. What, what is Paul putting his finger on when he tells them that? He's telling them that, you know, you, you guys are, you're operating in this like there's nothing on the inside of you. Like you're void on the inside, desperate to find something to fix that. And Paul's remedy for it is it's all yours already. What, it, what does that mean? Right, what does it mean for this to be all yours? All things are yours. Well, let's take off the table what it probably doesn't mean. It probably doesn't mean when you drive down the street, you know, my kids were little, they would do this. They would, they would drive past cars and claim them as their own. And it was like a battle. The first one who saw it, yellow Mustang, claimed it. And then, you know, it's like I used to say, well, there's got to be some cost. You can only own so many cars. No, no, we just own them all. So just everything. So you can't drive down veterans today and go, New Orleans hamburger, mine. Uh, honey, let's just go in and eat. We own it now. I don't think this means all things that you can imagine, just they suddenly become your possession to do with however you want. It, it fixes you that way. I, I don't think that's what he means. Here's the way in which Paul frequently would speak of these all thing factors. Right? Here's two examples. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is is Paul's opening remarks to the Ephesians. He is going to let them know who they are and what they have. This is who you are and this is what you are. You have been blessed in Christ. Past tense, all these verbs you're going to see here, they are past accomplished activities. They're not things that you create. They're not things that somebody else can create for you. They are what God has secured for you. And they are yours. You possess them. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then after he unpacks some of that, verse 11, he comes back and says, In him we 
have obtained an inheritance. See, this is, this is Paul saying, do you not know this? You, you live your life as though your, your soul tank is on E. And you're desperate to pull into the next gas station after the next gas station. You live your life like we're going to run out of gas, we're going to run out of gas. You live your life that way. And in that, living it that way, there's fear and there's jealousy. And why does somebody else have so much gas in their tank? I mean, it just, it eats at us. And and Paul, do you not know something? Have you missed something? I, I, I know you know this, but you really don't know it. Do you not know this? All things are yours. Peter's going to say it this way. Chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All right, just stop before we go any further in that passage. You know, all right, visit right for a second with me. What, what, what's the inner turmoil in your soul right now all about? What's it about? I would bet whatever, you, whatever particular flavor you have, bottom line for all of us, that the inner turmoil is generated by a soul that feels like it's on E. Whatever I need, I don't have. And I'm beginning to panic. And I'm, and I'm living my life desperately clinging to things trying to manipulate things. I'm hard to be around because I'm critiquing stuff. I'm, I'm panicking. I'm full-blown panic on the inside. And so all these issues and challenges and problems that are popping up in my life, they're, they're coming out of this internal emptiness, this void that Paul speaks to and says, hey, you, you want to know why, Corinthians, you got all this external dysfunction going on in your world? Because on the inside, you know things that you don't really know. Do you not know all, all things are yours? And Peter explains it as to say all things that pertain to life and godliness. So I know right now you can create a list and say, well, Keith, I can tell you right now all things are not mine. You know, this is happening. That's not happening. I can't do this. This is never going to happen in my life. The day is gone already. That'll never, I'm too old for that. My spouse is this way. My children are that. My money is this. I, I don't have all things. But you do. You have all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, if you'd like to ignore that and keep living for whatever it is that you are calling life, that's up to you. But there is no plan B. This is plan A. This is it. I'm either by faith right now with all my list of stuff. I'm right now going to conclude I have everything I need. Pertaining to life. Oh no. No. I'm... You see my finances? There's no way. You, you, you met my spouse? <laughs> I don't have. See, do you see what you're waiting for? That the Bible's not waiting for it? You see, see what you don't know that you think you know? What, what is this verse meaningless? Hey, Peter, thanks for taking a swing. One more strike and you're out, buddy. Got any other dumb ideas? Because this one isn't true. 
Or, or is it true? I think we all conclude it's the word of God. It is true. All things. God has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Listen. Through the knowledge of him. Through the knowledge of him. So what if that knowledge of him is really, really shallow? Well, then you may have just discovered the problem. There are things that you know that you really don't know. It's through the knowledge of him that you begin to recognize, I, I have all things. Your argument back to God begins to get silenced as the knowledge of him increases. Through this knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You get to actually experience the very life of God through this knowing him deeply. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Something the Corinthians were failing to do. They were getting launched. The orbit that they lived in lived within the gravitational pull of their own cravings and desires. Creating loyalties of this one and competition with that one and jealousy and pride and strife. They were not escaping that. Why? Because they really didn't, they didn't have all these things? No, because they didn't know what they thought they knew. I'm going to give some particular examples. I'm going to let the Apostle Paul, actually I shouldn't blame this on Paul. I'm going to let the Apostle Keith rewrite a little piece of this. And I'm going to address it as letters. I think we have these letters. Here we go. All right, this is how this sounds in a modern setting. Dear Tiger Mom and Driven Dad, let no parent boast in their children as something that makes them unique or some praiseworthy accomplishment will fill the void you feel in your own life. All things are yours. Do you understand how this Void travels into our world. Let's read a couple more letters. Dear trendy teen, let no teen boast in their trendy clothing or tech devices or name brands or number of likes as though your association with that which is popular or noticed by others has the power to make you feel whole or significant or important. Do you not know you have all things while these things are killing you? Dear church politician, you know who you are. (laughs) Let no one boast in their church title or their serving status or their achieved influence. For these things are designed for other purposes besides self-affirmation and personal identity. This, this is why some people, you want there's turmoil, there's outer conflict in the church. It's just because you want something that you just can't seem to get in the church. And you end up 
taking it out on the church and gossiping about the church or even leaving the church. Maybe you left the church and you came here. First thing I'd tell you is you might need to go back and fix that before you make this your permanent home. You might need to have the courage to see what did you bring to the table instead of just saying, well, that church and those pastors and that guy and my small group leader. (laughs) All right, well, great. You're deep in everybody else, but you're shallow in you. Well, this is why. Here's Here's a current trendy letter. Dear Gender Jenny, let no one boast in their revolutionary concepts of gender identity. For you will find that associating oneself with uniqueness will fail to fill the void. It will fill your life with striving and struggle and division, but it will not be that which settles your soul. Let me just say this very carefully. I was almost careful not to write that one. Uh, Because I believe there are some people who genuinely struggle with understanding their feelings about being male or female. Uh, I, I, I believe that's pretty rare, but it does exist. And for those folks, we, we, we love those people. We want to care for them. They are struggling with their humanity, just like you and I are struggling with our humanity in some way. But what I'm seeing today is this is trendy. All of a sudden, into our high schools and our colleges, there is this introduction to gender confusion that's being done by the leaders in these settings and everybody is supposed to really not be sure about who they are. And it's kind of like a trendy thing. And like the thing for me to do is to join the I'm confused about who I am movement. Can I just warn you, strife awaits you, division with people awaits you, jealousy and comparison awaits you, an empty soul is going to be at the end of that road. And that's what it's going to feel like. Dear homeschool Harry, let no one boast in their devotion to their children or their unique approach to family or lifestyle. For while one plants and another waters, what you are hoping for can only come from God. I find, and we homeschooled our children, so I have license to say this. uh, I, I find sometimes homeschooling is an attempt to gain control of the world in order to make something happen for our children. And one plants and another waters, but there is a heart involved here that only God can get at. And we have to trust God into that area. One more. Dear generational loyalist, let no one boast saying, I'm of baby boomers, or I'm of millennials, or I'm of Gen Z. As though your association with the thoughts and patterns of others will give you an identity, or your unique life ideas will fill the void of significance. For that which makes you who you are is spiritual, right? Remember the rest of these chapters preceding this moment. It is spiritual, and you get that by grace, in abundance by the sovereign choice of God and the imparting of the Holy Spirit. But we run after these ideas because something on the inside of us ain't right. And that's what I want to try and take a moment to minister to today. Uh, Eric, can you come back up? Join me. All right, so think with me. Go ahead, stand up with me. Let's, let's change our posture here. 
All right, how many of us can, you don't have to raise your hand or amen me on this, but how many of us can agree that we know some things that we really don't know? Can you go there with me? Is that probably true? All right, so maybe we know some things about ourselves that we really don't know about ourselves. So just listen for a moment. Just see how how is this translating into your own soul? Are you self-aware right now, this season of your life, of inner turmoil? Maybe you get a break from that from moment to moment when the saints are winning. It's close to the end of the fourth quarter. You're distracted from your inner turmoil, as you should be. But it's coming back. That sense that I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not a happy camper right now. Are you, are you aware of that? Are you aware of outer dysfunction? Is your life beginning to show wear and tear because of that? Relationships, your efforts at work, your involvement with people, beginning to withdraw, your emotional feelings, creating difficulties and conflicts, etc., Are you aware of any comparison and jealousy and maybe criticalness is rising in your heart? You're very critical toward other people and other settings and leaders and influencers. So if you're here today and those would be indicators that your soul, this is like Paul shifting. He's like, wait, all of a sudden you were about Paul and Apollos and now you're about the void on the inside. Yes, exactly, exactly. So here's what I want to ask you. Does your soul feel like it's on E right now? Let's pray for a moment. Bow your heads with me. It is weighty to think that gathered in this room, people we love dearly are here in this meeting with a smile that's just not going to last. It'll be gone this afternoon. It will be nowhere to be found as they lay their head on a pillow tonight. Because life feels empty like it's just missing something Lord that's a moment where we're tempted maybe some of us already have started down the road of this boasting endeavor let me, let me find something let me go find the thing the person the idea the church the whatever Or could it be we are a room full of people feeling that way, having to answer the question, do, do you not know all things that you need for your life and godliness are yours 
through the knowledge of him. Lord, we're a wealthy bunch of people. We have obtained an inheritance. Lord, we have a life bank account that is staggering. Do we not know that? Are we here this morning feeling like, no, my account is bankrupt. It's just empty. Lord, I know this is how our lives can feel. Lord, this morning what we needed to hear was what the Corinthians heard as well. This outer dysfunction, this inner turmoil gives away something. It gives away the way we've been living our lives. Busy knowing things that aren't helping us. While there's some other things that we know that we really don't know. God, right now, I don't, I don't believe, Lord, there's, there's so much something that can happen right here in this second. Lord, I, I don't know that there are words over us to pray. I don't know that laying hands on one another addresses this situation. Lord, what addresses this is what we know, what we really know, how we know you, how we have made our lives available for knowing you. through the knowledge of him that we know that we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. It's through the knowledge of him that we know we have received everything, all things pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, it's through that that we escape the corruption of this world and we experience the abiding life of God in us. Lord, this is precious revelation. Lord, what I pray for us right now, Lord, that all throughout this room, Lord, you would awaken our soul to the knowledge of you, to the pursuit of you, to our availability to you, Lord, to stare longingly into your face, to observe truth that we know we've heard that before, but we know we haven't known that. And we meditate and we ponder and your spirit leads us and enlightens us and strengthens us with power in the inner man. Lord, there is a revelation of a full soul that we need to get. There is a deposit that's so rich that you have given to us. Lord, today, change. Change what we're getting ourselves around, Lord. Change what we're making room for. Change what's crowding out the knowledge of you. Change that we don't meditate on your word. God, change that we don't pray and let you draw near to us and speak things to us about what we have and what is ours and who we are. Change that in us, Lord. For if that doesn't change, we will be as ignorant of you a month from now as we are today. And there will still be things that we know that we really don't know. So Lord, we pray that together. Lord, I pray that for my own soul. I pray that for this church. God, we pray that for family members that are among us. We pray for husbands and wives. Oh Lord, we pray for where there is broken relationships and conflicts. Where people are separating from one another. God, would there be an ever-increasing knowledge of you 
Lord, that's what changes how we relate to one another. God, will we pray for each other in this? Lord, what a, what a radical church would be in the city of New Orleans. Lord, we are this city's alternative. God, make us, make us to be a people that it's really clear we know our God. We know you, Lord, deeply. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, listen, if you're here and you just came to church today just burdened with something, you just maybe would like the elders to pray with you about that's going on, come find us. You come, Just come up to the front of the, the building here and, and, and any of us will come and gather with you and pray for you. So just avail yourself of a time of prayer if that's something that you feel the need of. And God bless you guys and have a great, awesome week.